It is August. It is 2021. Welcome to another month of Action Figure of the Month Club. Welcome to Destazapod. We have a lot to cover today, and we got some uh, Q&A, so uh, that's going to be interesting. Right off the top, a big thank you to everybody that supported the Diver campaign. The final draw pulled in $18,715. This is incredible. This far exceeds our goal of $15,000. And uh, this is, you know, this continues on the trend of us being able to autonomously fund these ideas. And we do so not on a popular platform like Kickstarter and not with any ad buy. There's no, you know, we're not spending money outside of uh, just the production of this figure in ads or marketing or things like that that sort of funnel potentially new people to a project. This is just through word of mouth and through you guys and through our Instagram. So pretty phenomenal. And I'm super excited that Diver's going to happen. I have a feeling today's questions might be about Diver. We'll see. Um, It's also worth noting, this is episode number 249, if you can believe it. Uh, So hopefully for 250, I will have a special guest and a uh, commemorative Distazapod. That should be a lot of fun. So uh, with that out of the way, we're going to do a quick break, hop back, do some news, and then get to your questions. It's Destazapod. Welcome. The first half of this year has been a absolute sprint up a sheer face cliff wall. And uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but now that it's finally a little bit of a lull, a little quiet time, I'm looking back and these first six months of the year have been really tremendous. And it's kind of hard to think about this stuff as it's happening, but just off the top of my head, we completed the Turbo Atoll story. Uh, you know, that was a, a uh, another comic that was printed and that whole process was completed. Uh, we launched a zine, we launched a follow-up uh, ebook the summer of nights all of this happened within you know the first six months of the year actually seven if you count July uh we mailed out seven months of action fair of the month club we did so on time we recorded our own music single and did a video for it the cherubium and the poncho three-pack launched brand new item funded by patreon money we did the heart drop Alexander got reintroduced, the Verkill Assassin was first showcased, and this all happened this year. It's insane to think about. It feels like an absolute lifetime. Oh, and not to mention, Sen 5 and the Sen series arrives and debuts, and uh, seems to have universal critical acclaim. And I'm very, very proud of Sen 5. I think in, in some respects, Sen 5 is the perfect distillation of uh, my childhood idea with Beef Strong's uh, take on the character and his ingenuity and everybody on the team, Siva Jack and Dowdy and Nikki and everybody sort of, uh, you know, working in unison. I think that this is the best figure we've done so far. I think we're going to surpass that pretty quickly. But uh, I'm extremely proud of Sen 5. This one feels like... Um, Possibly for the first time ever, 
it is exactly as I saw it in my brain, which is not something easy to translate. And it's no fault of anyone that these ideas don't always translate 100%. But this one feels like the living embodiment of those ideas. So all of that sort of brings us to August, which is going to be a much more chill experience and, and frankly, very much needed, right? I need to recharge my batteries. Uh, I have a bunch more story ideas I'd like to put pen to paper for. I have mechanicals I have to design for Diver. I have to work with the Design a Night uh, tier people. So um, there's a lot of sort of back stage work that has to be done and this is a good time to do it now that we've fulfilled this big obligation with Zen 5 and Promega is moving uh, along nicely. Action Figure of the Month Club for August will be a fulfillment towards the end of the month yet again but uh, the good news is September should go out first week of September right away. A uh, quick side note this pops up every single month usually with one or two people. Um, if for some reason Patreon charges you and there's a decline or there is an issue with your payment, um, it sort of lists you as no longer a patron in the reports that get run. I don't know why this is, uh, it, you know, their backend software is lacking in, in many respects. So if you get a notification that uh, you were declined and you fix it, it's a good idea as a safety just to drop me an email, jesse at eerietheoryentertainment.com, and just let me know that that happened and uh, you should be all good and I'll make a note on my end. Um, prior to shipping out Action Figure of the Month Club goods, I print out a Excel sheet and it's got everybody's names on it and their tiers and uh, I use that to do fulfillment. If you're showing up as a declined, you either are printed on that list as somebody who's no longer a patron, or it just omits you completely from that, uh, that piece of data. So, um, you know, I wish their backend was a little bit better in this regard, but uh, if you guys see this happening, just drop me a note, and I'll make sure that you get your Action Figure of the Month Club figure in a timely fashion. In August, patrons also have access to a free 3D file created by Chibi Riot Creations, a long-standing squire and patron. Uh, this month's figure is Alexander, so I look forward to seeing everybody printing those files out. Remember to keep the file confidential and amongst yourselves and other patrons. So what does August hold in a bigger sense? Uh, we'll probably have one or two drops the next drop, I believe, is going to be August 10th, if that is indeed the Tuesday. Um, and it is going to be Frankenslice-centric. There are a couple characters that were previously Frankenslices that I promised I would make more of. Well, that time is finally here. Um, there's also going to be a couple new figures in there. Largely, uh, really great material-style bases for your customizations. I know everybody's going custom crazy right now. So I want to help supplement that with some really awesome materials. You're probably also wondering what's going on with Crow. Well, we are really picking up steam with the project now. Um, there was an issue with Crow's test shot in that he did not hold the weapons very well. 
And uh, I ultimately made the decision to revise the hands. We're going to hollow out the palms just ever so slightly so that his weapons can sit uh, in a much better manner. He was just kind of holding them loosely. And uh, I don't like that in a figure. I try to correct that when I can. So um, Crow is likely, if there are no sort of additional delays, probably going to land in the United States in October and uh, he will quickly be ushered out the door. I know we got some crow questions coming up later on in the episode. Uh, this still puts him in within the fall territory. Um, I wish it would be quicker, but this is how things go. The upside is that, uh, you know, crow took a very long time post-campaign in terms of tweaking, and then uh, there was a huge slowdown over in China before he was tooled. And that definitely added weeks to our timeline, but it's moving in a really positive and very quick direction right now. So I very much am looking forward to closing the chapter on these the quartet of Beef Strong buddies, and uh, it's looking good so far. I, I do have a Crow Test shot sitting right here. It is a huge figure. It is very hefty. And I think people are really going to like this. And more to the point, I'm very excited to get back to Pangaea Island. There is a lot uh, of story that needs to be laid out. And uh, it's uh, it's going to be pretty dangerous for some heroes that we really like. So that'll be a lot of fun. Oh, and uh, final bit of news here. Natalie Kortomoto's Running With Scissors figurine is going on sale this Friday. So uh, you can follow her at Natalie, with an I, Koromoto, um, on Instagram. Uh, these are ever so slightly Glyos compatible. This is a project under O'Neill Designs Care, and uh, we're very happy for these figures to be launching. So um, definitely check it out. Pick one up if you like her artwork. Uh, remember, she is also the voice of Hob, which uh, OG fans will know. And um, let's make sure we're supporting everybody's projects. Okay, so with all that out of the way, we're going to hop into questions for this week. First up, Matthew Paquette. Have you had a chance to do some Sen-inspired Franken-slices? Do you have a favorite Sen build that you put together and have on your desk or in the workshop? Um, absolutely. Now, I, I can't tell you what my favorite Franken-slice build is because it is actually going to be a release at some point. Um, I, I actually ordered an entire style of Sen and the character's name throughout production and for the factory and for the cartons is Scrap. And the entire purpose of this one specific Sen is to be atomized immediately. He's already been pulled apart. Uh, and his pieces are going to be used in a bunch of different characters. This is really the, uh, you know, it's using every part of the buffalo, so to speak. I would argue more than any other single figure we've done before, Sen leans, uh, lends himself to Franken-slicing better than anybody else. And you're going to see the evolution of that uh, over the next few months and, and probably even into next year. Um, there is, it, it is just such a rich canvas 
for coming up with clever combinations and things like that. It was not easy to sit on and keep secret uh, the different facets of Zen and the surprises that I ultimately wanted to keep for people until those first sort of pre-orders went out. And somehow it worked. Like, there was genuine surprise when those first couple pictures started to show up and word started to spread about what exactly uh, this character could do. So um, we were playing a very long game in terms of secrets and reveals, but this time it worked, and that feels pretty good. As I've often said with Knights of the Slice, you may go broke, but you will never be bored. I will also say, finally, um, that uh, I really, really, really enjoy seeing the custom builds. That is uh, my addiction to toy making manifest, right? Uh, the days, the, the kind of first two or three days when a brand new figure is arriving, I cannot get away from my devices. I am constantly hitting refresh. I'll have Instagram open, I'll have the Discord open, and I am just eager to see everybody's customs and their experience with this figure for the first time, because honestly, that's when I get to experience it for the first time, right? There, there's no sort of surprise uh, in the process for me until I interpret and sort of experience your surprise of these figures. Then I'm like a babe in the woods. And I will also say, um, your photos of Sen within the first two or three days uh, created a, an enormous second wave of orders from brand new people I've never seen before. We've just added a ton of new customers. Uh, also, sort of uh, holdouts or older customers I hadn't seen in, in a few years came back to the well. Uh, by all accounts, you know, a fantastically successful figure and largely fueled, I mean, entirely fueled by you guys in the campaign. And then this sort of second appreciation of Sen is because of you guys sharing photos and using the hashtag Toy Pizza and Knights of the Slice. So I thank you uh, quite a bit for that. It's, it's really tremendous. Next up is Jeremy Price. Similar to how you offered the Sen four pack to patrons that weren't around for the original Sen and Chromega fundraiser, will you be offering a package of Chromega to patrons this fall? It is entirely possible. Um, I would very much like to do that. Um, we have the sort of numbers to be able to do that. Uh, the big question will be how many delays are there and how much time do I have ahead of Crow arriving to build and offer a uh, advanced pre-order patrons. So I, I would put the likelihood at uh, very high and just stay tuned to Patreon for more information as we get closer to October. Mike from It Went Bad is next. I've done some injection molding, molded plastic design in the past and was able to choose specific surface textures for everything during the development process. Is this something that is available to you and considered while planning out how the finished figure slash accessories will ultimately look and feel? Um, I would need a little bit more background information um, on a couple points. I need some clarity here. Uh, one is, you know, what is the methodology of the injection molded plastic? Is this a one-part mold? Is this a two-part mold? 
is this roto molded um you know the the molding process has different sort of uh limitations and different advantages we use a two-part mold system that is injected with uh you know molten hot plastic and um so we are limited in that process in some respects the other thing i'm curious about is the application of surface texture is this a modification that's happening to a 3d file or this is an actual sort of additive to the plastic itself that gives it a different texture um, that i'm i'm not clear about but what I can speak to in our own process when it comes to a very specific type of plastics manufacturing, uh, as I sort of outlined it before, um, there is not a whole lot of texture options when it comes to the plastic. Uh, any texturing really has to be done at the sculptural level. So if there's folds of clothes or there's exposed uh, battle damage wiring, that's all a sculptural issue. Uh, has nothing to do with the sort of plastics as they're selected. We are primarily limited to coated and uncoated plastic. Um, the coated PVC having a sort of sheen to it and the uncoated being a little bit more matte. Uh, even that, there's not a huge distinction between uncoated and coated PVC plastic in, in terms of our process. They are relatively pretty similar and there's no sort of tactile difference uh, when you're holding one in your hand it is it's just about the sort of sheen or the uh, glossy the apparent glossiness of the plastic now I suppose that you could sort of have uh, a bit grittier feel of a plastic there are probably additives that can go into that I know a lot of like um, recycled plastic toys have a sort of grittiness to them. I'm assuming there is some sand or other particulates that are added to the plastic mix. Um, that's not an option I've ever explored when it comes to toys. We're pretty consistent with how figures are made for any company, really. You know, we, we uh, typically just have sort of PVC and then the uh, C or the U option. So hopefully that answers the question. Uh, if you chime in in the question thread and uh, fill in some more information. That would be great because I'm, I'm definitely curious to learn more about uh, your process. Next up is Gordon McKinnon Hall. Are there other existing characters besides Minerva and Zed Star 7 in the Knights of the Slice universe who are musicians or have aspirations to be? Uh, well, there is the great Max who wore a Rift Killer outfit. Of course, he was a pop star. And um, his career ended pretty quickly when he came up against Teal and the rest of the Rift Killers. Um, Vaughn has been known to pick up an acoustic guitar from time to time. Largely, he does that to attempt to impress chicks, but he's pretty terrible. He's about as good of a guitar player as I am, which is to say, pretty abysmal. Um, but uh, he does look very cool holding an acoustic guitar by the campfire. Other than that, if there are musicians amongst the characters in Knights of the Slice, they have yet to reveal that fact to me. But uh, I look forward to uh, any of them that may want to come forward and uh, share their musical talents with me. 
Next up is a really fantastic question that is actually something I've been thinking about heavily this past week. And uh, I want to cue this up. This is from Michael Coppola. Uh, this might get heavy, but are what are your thoughts on not consuming media, movies, music, etc., by anyone who has done wrong in the world? There are tons of bands slash actors I could list. Do you still consume old media prior to these events happening, or is it just a cutoff completely kind of thing? Uh, I've had this topic on my mind a lot lately and was curious as to your take. This is fantastic. This is a lot of uh, the same things I've been contemplating. Uh, ultimately, I do not think it matters if you consume media from people who have done bad in the world. And um, there's a, a myriad of reasons why I believe that. And uh, I'm struggling to think of where to start exactly. Um, okay, so... I think as, a, as an experiment, as a cultural movement, I think we can safely say that cancel culture has not worked. Uh, I think the nail in the coffin was when Bill Cosby was uh, essentially released from prison. Um, I think that is all the proof you need that the system we have today is not actually going to hold accountable in a meaningful way people that are rich or powerful. Now, there are exceptions to that. There are people that, um, you know, will get some meter of justice. You know, hopefully Harvey Weinstein rots in his jail cell for the rest of eternity. But as we can see with the Cosby uh, overturning, if you're rich enough, uh, eventually, even if you initially incur some measure of justice, uh, it will be overturned and you will be set free. Now, the bigger experiment of that may have been a failure, but has it sort of changed human interaction to uh, a level where men cannot sort of wholesale abuse or treat women badly without any fear of consequence? I do believe it has, and I do think that's a minor but important step in the right direction. You know, if you think of all the older generation of people that maybe, you know, through work or have gone on business trips with and their lecherous nature, uh, making people like that even a little bit gun-shy, I think, is a positive thing. But that brings us more to the question of Michael Coppola. Uh, people who are famous, people in power, uh, you know, tend to uh, do bad things, right? And that might be a tale as old as time, and there are, of course, exceptions to that. But generally, there seems to be a high concentration of creeps, perverts, uh, sex weirdos, predators, centered around fame, money, politics, people of a sort of higher status in society. And when it comes to the arts, uh, it seems endemic in almost all forms of entertainment that a good portion of these people are, you know, really, really bad. So where does you, that leave the average person in terms of wanting to listen to an R. Kelly song or watch a Roman Polanski film? It leaves you feeling kind of confused and conflicted, right? And there's a reason for that. And uh, this is kind of zooming out a bit, but we have sort of confused culture for politics because the lever of politics, the ability to enact change has been obscured from us, if not completely, uh, you know, almost to that degree. 
we are powerless in this sort of world to enact change in a meaningful way. So what we get instead is sort of cultural victories. We get Nancy Pelosi wearing a dashiki, we don't actually get any fundamental change. We get the Black Panther being a hit movie, but we don't actually get any meaningful regulation against police brutality. And these are all symptoms of the bigger system. You can call it whatever you like, global capitalism, uh, you know, whatever sort of definition fits. The status quo, the hegemonic way that things are done today, they want you focused on cultural things, not political things. And both parties in power in the United States ape this. They use it to their advantage. That's why you are enlightened if you drink Starbucks and you're crude if you drink Black Rifle coffee. When on a fundamental level, coffee is a commodity, uh, largely all coffee beans are the same. It's a caffeinated hot beverage. You are not any more virtuous or any more antagonistic for choosing one brand over another. Watching a Keanu Reeves movie is not more virtuous because, uh, you know, he dates an older woman and seems largely to be unproblematic in his personal life uh, versus watching a direct-to-video uh, Christian movie written by Ben Shapiro. But our brains are very confused in this modern age, and we think that by making consumer choices, we can attain virtue. And I'm here to tell you this is completely untrue. This is a facade. This is a... This is a complete construct that only benefits the system staying in power as it is. But where does that leave us, right? What is, what is there to do? Um, what I do for myself that is some, you know, somewhat helpful in this very, very confusing world, in this world oversaturated by entertainment and consumer choices, is I try to separate politics from culture as best I can. So I don't really think that Leslie Nope is a better character to watch a TV show about than say Roseanne Barr. I understand that these are constructs, I understand this is culture, and my liking or disliking either of these fictional entities has no bearing on my politics or more importantly how I treat people. But being able to separate culture and entertainment from politics means you actually have to have some political acumen to you, which is not easy to obtain in this day and age because there is a thick fog laying over anything that is actual political change. And it's been engineered this way. And it's been engineered this way for a very long time. People in power do not want the average citizen to have a, a consciousness about these things or to, to understand the difference. For all the praise heaped on Alexandra Hamilton and all the Disney specials and stage shows, uh, that was a man who hated the masses. He thought that the average person was sort of dumb and dirty and, uh, you know, corrupt and crude, and that they shouldn't have a say in government or how things should uh, be run. So how do you give yourself political acumen in this modern era of bells and whistles going off at all hours of the day? And, infinite streaming services. Um, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, I, there's a couple things you can do. And one is ask the question, what are you gonna do for me? And you should apply that to any sort of political figure that there is. 
regardless of party affiliation. Uh, politics is about who has power and what they do with it and what you get from it. We have stopped asking what will politicians do for us and instead we frame them as virtuous people, you know. Are they, uh, you know, are they ordained with a, a vision that matches mine and, and reaffirms the values that I hold? Is AOC uh, a, a better person than Ted Cruz? All this is irrelevant. The question should be, what are they going to give me? What is this elected person going to give me? Is this person going to get me closer to universal health care? Which is a wildly popular idea that the vast majority of Americans support and want. Um, if you look at both political parties, uh, they are largely out of step with what the common citizen of the United States believes. They are very conservative, both Democrats and Republicans, and they just do not share the views of the majority of people like me and you. So the first step uh, in sort of having political awareness and acumen to yourself is to know that you are asking them to do something for you. And if they're not going to provide you with anything, then they are an empty shell and they're worthless. So once you can sort of use that critical framing device to understand politics, it works on a local level. So you can look at which officials in your county or in your state are going to give you something. And you should you know, do your research and vote accordingly to that. The second thing is that politics is not just Democrats and Republicans. Politics is actually your local community. And I pointed this out before that knowing the name of the local food bank is extremely important. And that is an act of political action to figure out what they need and donate accordingly or volunteer your time there, or figure out if they need canned foods this season, or if they need fresh vegetables, or if they need paper goods. You know, how many of us know the name or know anybody who works at the local food bank? That is a huge thing that you can sort of familiarize yourself with very easily and take action to better your community and the lives of people around you and the people that are less fortunate than you. Second thing after that is, is there a local mental health hub in your area? Is there a place that offers no cost or low, uh, low cost assistance to people struggling, people with mental disorders, help people get medication that maybe there's gaps in their coverage for? That is another extremely important thing you can be doing. And post and I really we're still in the pandemic. Uh, an incredibly crucial piece of keeping the fabric of society together. So I do think it helps to sort of be able to focus locally and take political action that way. Uh, and if you can do that, if you can sort of frame things as what are you going to get from a politician and you're going to take action on a local level to better your community, you're going to feel that you have a little bit more ability to do good in the world and you will have made moral actions and decisions. And then when it comes to entertainment, you understand that making a superficial moral 
you know, signifier, such as, oh, uh, Dave Chappelle has made trans jokes, so I'm not going to watch any more Dave Chappelle specials. Well, guess what? That is a very superficial moral feigning, and it doesn't actually make the world any better. It doesn't actually protect trans rights. It doesn't actually hurt Dave Chappelle's wallet, and um, it's, you know, it, it It is through sort of superficial moral acts that we can justify a bigger system that is thoroughly corrupt that we all participate in. So, and of course, as I'm going through this diatribe, my phone is ringing because I forgot to turn off my buzzer because why would I do that? I only have one job, really. And of course, I'm going to fail to do that every time I hit record. Anyway, uh, the bigger point I'm trying to make here is that these cultural debates... Uh, They mean nothing, and they are a distraction, and they keep you from actual politics. Uh, You cannot make America a better place by listening to Pod Save America over something like Cumtown. It has no bearing and no effect on the greater world. So unburden yourself from thinking that a consumer choice in a morally corrupt world has any bearing on the balance of good versus evil in this life, because it does not. It does nothing to prevent or help uh, people that are immiserated. So I give you full permission to listen to all the problematic music you want. Uh, Go back and, uh, you know, uh, watch all the Trapped in the Closet videos. Have a Michael Jackson-themed sleepover party. Well, maybe not that. Uh, Consume all the bad media made by really problematic folks you want. And instead, do actual moral and good things in your real waking life and in your political life. And uh, you will be a better person for it, and you will actually change your local community in a much bigger way. And if any of this runs counter to what you guys believe in, and you have a knee-jerk reaction, and this all sounds wrong and tone-deaf, here's my challenge to you. What is the correct combination of music, television, and movies that I can watch to become a 100% fully actualized moral being. Just lay that out for me. Give me the prescription of the healthy shows and maybe comic books that I can simply consume with doing no other action in the world and become a moral person. I, I have yet to see this, this formula but I would love to know what it is because then I can just consume media and not actually volunteer my time or my money or worry about any of the suffering of anybody else. I can just simply watch the correct combination of Marvel films in the right order and buy the right Disney product and I will be absolved of all guilt. And that sounds wonderful. That's so much easier. What a convenient consumer solution. So lay that out for me if it exists. And uh, I'll take it under consideration. But great question, Michael. Thank you. Now a lighter question. Daniel Hartzler, listening to past Q&As, I've heard a lot of questions regarding video games. The one that got me primed for Star Marshall is Red Dead Redemption 2. Is it an incredibly immersive? Uh, it is an incredibly immersive game, and I'm wondering if you played it. 
Um, okay, so unpopular opinion here. I did actually pick up a copy of Red Dead Redemption, uh, I believe, this winter. Found it at a tag sale for $5. And uh, I found it so fucking boring. I played about four or five hours and then never went back to it. And I know this is a very cinematic game. This is a slow burn. It is worth slogging through it because it's incredibly fulfilling. Uh, I just, I, I couldn't do it. And I love the Western setting. Obviously, my mind was completely in Star Marshal mode as well. Uh, I just found it to be such a slog. I, I, I couldn't go back to it. So uh, I know I'm in the minority here, but um, it's just how I feel. Next question from Jerry Bow. I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, at one time an extra torso piece was made to give Sen some height uh, and was shown. Was this scrapped or could it still make a debut, a debut in the future? Sorry if this has already been answered somewhere else. Um, I don't, I don't believe there was a separate torso for Sen. We had a version that was a bit uh, longer but that got changed around to add the battle damage to his sort of left side. There may have also been sort of early photos where we utilized some Glyos parts to give him a, a bit of a lift. Um, so, you know, that might be what you're remembering. But, but officially, there is no sort of alternate torso for Sen. We locked in this one design pretty quickly and haven't deviated from that. Next up from Charlie Pope. Will we ever see Exom Knight appear in future stories? I really enjoy this colorway. Um, so when I do an homage, I, I don't typically give those characters stories and I don't typically repeat an homage beyond that one sort of offering. I, I like to keep those as really limited things uh, and keep them special. I think, you know, too many homages spoil the stew as, as the uh, ancient Romans say. So uh, I don't see a future for further Exom versions, but plenty of base material out there if people want to customize that colorway. Quick little detour here. Uh, this is going to sound like an ad. This is not an ad. This is just my own personal feeling. Uh, I picked up the Jazzwares Fortnite mud flap semi truck. This thing is so fucking awesome. Um, you know, the, the Fortnite line is pretty great. Uh, I'm not a huge... Fortnite guy, but, uh, you know, I respect the, what they've built with that thing. And I respect, you know, how great Jazzwares has grown, uh, in terms of making these figures and having them be affordable and fun and, you know, pretty plentiful everywhere. Um, I saw pictures online of this semi-truck and I was immediately drawn to it because they have, uh, this character with it that looks a lot like Vaughn. I do think it's, it's a send-up of the dude from Big Lebowski, but for all intents and purposes, uh, works really well as a sort of Vaughn character as well. So I immediately was gravitated towards this set, and I just wanted to pick it up just for the figure, you know, for the fun of that. Uh, but it has this semi-truck vehicle, and it's remote-controlled, and the thing is, is insane. I actually think we have to do a Toy Pizza video on this, because uh, you can sort of drift with it, and it whizzes around at an insane speed. Um, I, you know, I think about when I was a kid and we had RC cars, but largely they were sort of connected by a wire. Uh, there were, of course, like high-end ones that were remote control, but those were sort of out of our price point. So 
this is, you know, in 35 years time, thinking of the little zippy cars I had that really didn't do much and, and couldn't go over carpet or things like that. This thing is a beast and uh, it's a hell of a lot of fun. So if you're looking for something new to give you a thrill, uh, this is a great pickup and also works really well with Night of the Slice figures. The cab of the vehicle kind of unfolds from the top down as well as the doors open. So it's very easy to fit larger Night of the Slice figures in there. And uh, this thing is a hell of a lot of fun. So uh, again, not a paid sponsorship, but holy hell, go check this, this vehicle out. I think you guys would have a lot of fun with it. Next up, question from Sam Sherry on the Facebook group. Have you read All Tomorrows? It's a fascinating sci-fi novel that starts with body horror, but ends up being a beautiful work about what it means to be human. Uh, I have not. You lost me at novel. Uh, I do not read very much. <laughs> if, if there is a uh, YouTube series that I can watch and fully understand the story and all its depth and color, then uh, sign me up. Back to the Patreon group, which by the way, folks, if you're listening to this on some platform and you're not a patron, you should consider going to patreon.com slash jessedastasio. There are a myriad of reasons why. I can give you the full value proposition right now, but um, I'm not going to. Just check it out. If you like it, sign up. It'll be good. Ian Amling has a question. What's the best way to approach Night of the Slice commission work? I have not done one, but the number of requests for originals and prints is growing. I feel I have done my diligence in producing and selling images that fall under the fan art umbrella, but there seems to be a number of interpretations of transformative slash humor categories. Seeing how this is directly related to the property you own, I'd very much like to know your thoughts. Well, I think this is step one, right? Uh, and this applies to any IP for smaller creators, not just Knights of the Slice. But uh, if you are somebody who does fan art and you get a request for somebody else's IP, assuming it's not a Disney or you know something of that level, uh, it's good to reach out to the creators. I think it, it definitely uh, shows good faith and, and I always appreciate that. So, you know, I, I think that's always the first move and a good move. I think if uh, you are getting requests from people to do a uh, beautiful drawing of Knights of the Slice characters, I give you my blessing. If they pay you for that, I think that's pretty great too. Um, the area where it gets a little bit sticky is that I'm going through the very long and complex and expensive process of registering trademarks. Um, now, one of the things you have to do when you're registering a trademark or a copyright is you have to show uh, first date of use and things like that and, and demonstrate where in the marketplace you're active. Uh, when there are sort of fan art, uh, it can sort of complicate things to some respect because it does add a level of confusion to the marketplace. But given that, you know, this is a relatively small community Everybody pretty much knows each other. You know, I, I'm very lax about these things and, and I think it's a good thing. Now, what I wouldn't advise is somebody listening to this who is a stranger to the brand or a stranger to myself hearing this 
and then at their next local Comic-Con setting up and, uh, you know, doing print-on-demand posters and things like that. That, unfortunately, as a creator, I would be compelled to take action against to preserve my claim on a copyright. And this is where, you know, art and commerce sort of intersect and it gets a little bit sticky because you are obligated as a creator with a registered copyright or trademark to uh, put people on notice and take legal action where there are very clear cases of infringement. If you fail to sort of police or enact these things, your claim on a copyright or trademark is quite diminished. So, you know, we're really not at the size where that is too big of a concern. But, um, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with how these things sort of work, I think that, uh, you know, that's probably interesting information to have. The other thing is, uh, when it comes to um, copyright, and specifically interpretations that are transformative or humor slash parody, people differ in opinion on this, and, and I'm certainly not a lawyer, and I know lawyers that see the humor or parody or transformative sort of uh, argument to be pretty lock-solid. I don't think those are really lock-solid defenses of using somebody else's IP. Um, Not because you may not be vindicated in an eventual lawsuit over these things. And look, this is just like a parade of horribles, uh, you know, sort of extrapolation of an idea. This is all sort of, uh, you know, for the purpose of making a theoretical argument here. Uh, you may be vindicated over your claim of a satire piece of work or a transformative derivative piece of work, uh, but it's going to cost you money to prove that claim. And if a big corporation wants to chill you out, even if their claim is meritless, they can just fire off a bunch of legal letters, which are going to be very expensive for you because you have to have them reviewed by an attorney and you'll find yourself quickly depleted of all your life savings. So, and again, that is like a worst case scenario argument I'm making here, but I don't ever feel um, empowered with the way copyright law would potentially protect a small artist with the sort of humor satire category or the transformative category because... um, The way all laws are stacked is it's going to favor these bigger corporations over you. Even if you are ultimately victorious, um, you know, the process of being sued or legal letters or things like that is uh, really exhausting and really expensive. Next question, Mike Johnson. Can we talk about the Action Figure of the Month, July's Secret Edition? Uh, We certainly can. I've seen some pictures posted online about it. For those who don't know, there was the Cherubium 3-pack available in the store. That got you three heads, a poncho, a knife, a hat. And then there was the Action Figure of the Month version of that, which was a, uh, you know, a clear, colorless variety, as well as a Golden Star Marshal. But what was not advertised was actually a fourth head that was included with Action Figure of the Month for July. Um, Now, am I going to reveal all the secrets about this head and its significance and its name and everything else? No, I'm not. It should be relatively easy to draw the conclusions based on art that is floating around. Um, 
However, I'm going to preserve that surprise for a later date. And uh, I will also say that if you are a patron currently in good standing, I am going to make available any extra of the Gold Star Marshall and the Clear Cherubium Pack. And uh, I will be doing so in short time. Uh, I don't have an immediate plan to do it. I, I gotta sort of get a couple people current with their missing packages, and then I will count up the extras and make those available for patrons only. This will not be going out to the general public or be made a store item in the next drop or things like that. So uh, stay tuned. If you are just joining us in August, you'll have a chance to get Julys. And uh, if you really, really wanna get a second set, that opportunity will be there for you. So stay tuned. Next question from Matt Connolly. Did you ever have any nicknames growing up or as an adult? What were they? Uh, I think the only one that stuck around uh, with any perseverance is the nickname Jester. Uh, this was formulated by Steve Vera, who is a patron, probably listening to this right now. And uh, I don't, I don't love it. I don't really hate it. it. It's fine as far as nicknames go. Uh, I do think also it was sort of uh, based on Top Gun. Uh, you know, that was a call sign in Top Gun, I believe. So not the worst. Uh, definitely people out there with way worse nicknames. My good friend Matt Bandle, his call sign when he was in the military was Kermit. That stuck with him his whole life. So uh, it could be worse. But even uh, as Matt Bandle will tell you, that was not the worst nickname you could get, nor the worst call sign, because in his unit, there was also someone called Lady Dancer. Next question from Ben Butwin on the Facebook group. What are the inspirations for Send 5? And, as I pointed out, in his question, you can go check out Toy Pizza episode number 142. That is uh, youtube.com slash toy pizza. Uh, the episode is entitled The Sen 5 Timeline from Childhood Drawing to Modern Toy. Uh, and this lays out perfectly all the inspirations and all the uh, childhood artwork I created of this character. And now, all these years later, maybe 30 years, He's here, he's real, and it's thanks to you guys. So go check out that video. It's a very good one. I'm proud of it. Back to the Patreon questions. Uh, Mike Johnson is breaking protocol here with two questions, but this one, he says, is a bit urgent. I've noticed recently that with some more porous plastics, suck up the dye from other plastics. Example, the pink Star Marshal armor stains the tan material marshals. Is there a way to combat this? Um, there is not a way to combat this. Uh, color leaching and, and plastic leaching is unfortunately just part of plastics. We think of them as a permanent uh, material, but they are very much not. Plastics do have a half-life, so to speak. They do diminish over time. If, uh, you know, you ever get a toy from the 80s that's kind of greasy to the touch, that's the outgassing effect as different uh, additives and particles sort of escape the compound. Uh, it's nasty stuff. But this is manufacturing in plastics, right? These are not uh, quite as permanent as we kind of think of them to be. A good rule of thumb 
is, uh, you know, if you don't want color leaching to happen, you should avoid sunlight for sure. UV rays absolutely break down plastic. Um, there was also issues with very light colors and very neon colors. Neon has a high intensity of pigment added to it. And, uh, that of course can sort of leach out onto things. Um, there is not, as far as I know, any solution to this stuff. Um, you know, having a display area that is not in direct sunlight in a windowless room is really great. You can also add UV film to any windows. You buy them by the sheet and they kind of slip onto glass panes. Uh, I utilize those in the workshop as well to kind of keep the UV rays, uh, you know, from coming in and destroying the stuff that sits here for quite some time. So, uh, no, I, unfortunately, this is just sort of part of manufacturing and plastics. Next question from Charles. We have cowboys, knights, robots, ninjas, hunks, even businessmen. What are the chances of a fighting monk or wizard? Maybe someday. Um, Chris Black also seconds the wizard idea. So, um, fighting monk, 100%, I'm on board with this, uh, because my current D&D campaign that I'm playing with my close friends, amongst them, uh, Steve Vera, who I know listens to this podcast, um, he is a monk, and this is the first time I've ever had a character that's a monk in a D&D campaign, and, uh, I really, you know, I'm enjoying it. So there will likely be a dedicated figure for him. Uh, problem being, it's going to be a Frankenslice. It's not going to be a wholly dedicated sculpt uh, to that character class. I would also say that, you know, a monk is kind of open for interpretation. I think we have a great amount of base pieces in which you could make your own monk. I don't know that it necessitates, you know, going through the process of tooling an entirely new character to satisfy the itch for one. Uh, now, we'll find out when I release my D&D character as an actual figure, and you guys can tell me if you think it sort of captures that monk spirit or not, and, and I'm open to uh, your input on that. Wizard is a much more compelling class to do a, a character or a figure of. Um, I do have a little character that I've been doodling in the margins for quite some time who is a wizard, and the, the problem with fantasy, I find, is that I don't ever want to just make a fantasy figure that just follows into the tropes of fantasy and that's it. It's not sort of different in any way. It's not offering a new fun twist on things. And I think fantasy, more than any other genre, really has a problem with uh, finding a new way to sort of tell fantasy stories, right? Because... They almost all involve a sword, a shield, enchanted weapons, suits of armor, knights, wizards, elves, orcs. You know, it, it's it's the same in all of these fantasy stories. And the reason I've never really gone too far down that road, although we have the Jagged Age and Cray and Hob, uh, is because I have a hard time coming up with anything new for the genre. And I don't really want to just do things that are tropes that have been well explored and done to death in far better properties than my own. So there is a sort of conscientious reason that I've never really gone too hard down the road of, uh, you know, iterating on ideas like the old knight 
Um, you know, it's it's something that I have a really high bar personally for. Uh, I would like to see a sort of wizard character. If I could find a compelling way to do it different, uh, I think I would explore that idea. Next question, Sean Gordon. At the time of the Food Wars, did Saima have the ability to conjure bug men yet? Uh, well, we don't know that, but what we do know is that as a child, she would sort of draw, and she would draw bug men, amongst other things, and those drawings seem to have a life to them. You know, they seem to animate on their own in some respects. So we know that her casting ability came on at a very young age. Um, we could also imagine that due to her injuries in the Food Wars, she would probably have a lot of time sitting there doing nothing. And maybe that's the ideal sort of uh, breeding ground for her to rediscover or further explore these powers. Strap in, folks. It's the Tomimoto Zone. Lance is here. There was an 80s toy line that had interchangeable parts and limbs between the characters that I remember seeing, like a ninja, a viking, alien, etc. Do you remember this line? And if I do, can I discuss it? Absolutely. That is Socket Poppers by Ertl. Uh, it was also released in Europe under a different name. I'm struggling to remember it at this moment. It was something like Interchangeables or... Um, some kind of generic uh, type of name. So you can actually find alternate packaging of these characters throughout the European countries. I know Greece had them. I think France did as well. Uh, there's not any unreleased characters or interesting paint deco changes or anything like that. But, um, you know, kind of a, a fun fact you can look into. Socket Poppers was a great line. Uh, I know for a fact it influenced Matt Dowdy and the creation of the Glios joint, because he's said as much to me. Um, and also, you can actually utilize Glios pegs in the Socket Poppers. They just, the limbs sit a little bit loose, but it is sort of the same uh, millimeter diameter, uh, or at least very close to what the, the sort of universal Glios peg is. So. Uh, really fun line, very influential line. I hope one day to have covered all the genres of that line within Knights of the Slice. Next question, Sean Denny. The poncho is fantastic. If you throw it on a more slender three and three quarter inch figure, it has a great oversized silhouette that merges high fashion with 90s anime. Any specific influences for it may be from the fashion world. Um, you know, this is a love letter to the sort of early RPGs, particularly on the Master System and Sega System, and particularly the artwork of Raiko uh, Kodama, who is a uh, female illustrator who did a lot of the early fanti uh, Fantasy Star artwork. And uh, if you look at her work, you always see these great big shoulder pads and these flowing cloaks and things like that. So it is kind of the combination of a lot of different influences, but I think if you look at those sort of mid-80s, uh, late-80s designs, which were absolutely inspired by high fashion of the time, uh, this is definitely like the flavor uh, of the poncho. I'm glad you really enjoy it. I think it's a, it's a super excellent accessory. People have not yet begun to really unlock the potential of this piece. 
And uh, we do have a Toy Pizza video coming up very soon showing some modifications you can do at home to the poncho set to uh, achieve some very interesting looks. Next question, Max G, the last few Saima part heavy figures, Airmere, the clear green Martian Guardsman, Minerva, haven't had caster wands, so my question is, is someone in Pangea Island or Harbor Noir hoarding caster wands? I like that idea. Obviously, these would be devices very much in demand. Uh, they can do so much, they can bend the fabric of reality. So, yeah, there would be a hoarding of them by uh, both entities, nefarious and benevolent. The real world reason why there's not as many caster wands as there are Saima parts is that the caster wand is in a separate smaller tool that includes accessories. It is not in the core steel tool that Saima's sort of default body belongs in. So um, not that secondary tool is not always being run congruently with the uh, standard Saima base body. So um, that's the reason for that. Although I do have quite a bit of a stockpile of caster wands. I want to find the right moments to kind of release those where it makes sense with the story. Next question, Brian Doran. When you created the Trilobite King, did you originally intend on him being a long foreshadowing type villain? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I had any necessary plans for the Trilobite King. I just knew what it sort of looked like in my mind. And uh, from there, Gavin did a, a drawing, which I think captured it quite nicely. But I didn't really have much of a plan for him beyond that. I don't even know if I knew necessarily it was going to be part of the Knights of the Slice storyline. It was just this kind of inkling of an idea that was gnawing away at me. Uh, and I would say, truth be told, I don't really know what the final note that Trilobite King is going to play, but I do know that I'm in no hurry to get there, and there are a lot of major and minor domos to sort of pass through before we get to the king himself. So uh, I would say strap in and be patient. Next up is Lane. Have you reconsidered doing some blind bag character releases or even blind bag mixed head packs? I feel like they would be a hot item. I remember when I was hesitant to get the previous head pack due to the preset parts that were included. I feel like the mystery of what's in it adds to the excitement and definitely felt compelled to put down for the spring Frankenslice figure because of it. I think generally no. Um, you know, what our strengths are in terms of selling and, and this line and getting people to purchase things is them knowing what the character is and knowing the story behind the character. And then all the activity that sort of surrounds a drop, whether it's, you know, ebooks or little uh, short stories or live streams. Um, that's sort of the appeal and the draw to Knights of the Slice. Now, it's not to say we can't have Frankenslices and things like that that are blind from time to time, but largely um, it doesn't work for us in a, in a bigger sense. Uh, people, most of the customers today were not around during our first release, but those were blind bag figures, and those were at retail as well, and that failed miserably. That was not a good uh, sort of rollout, and actually the line came very, very close to going out of business within its first release. So um, I'm definitely gun-shy about having too many things be blind. And, uh, you know, it's a gimmick we may mess with from time to time, but, but generally, 
because these are not appearing in stores. People don't have the benefit of going up and seeing what they're getting in person, holding it in their hand. I need to be pretty clear about what's going to be included and, uh, you know, hook people that way. Final question from our friend Jason Rushlow on the Facebook group. I think of any creative process to be like Plato's realm of forms. Let's say that there's a world where the perfect figure exists, but due to budgeting and other limitations, we truly can't obtain that perfect figure. Are there any instances where you feel like the perfect knight was obtained? Are there any that you wish you could improve upon? So to answer the latter first, I think I can always improve upon every single thing I make. And, um, you know, my philosophy for getting stuff out there is don't let good be the perfect, the enemy of perfect. Uh, I'm probably butchering that quote, but you get the general idea. I come from a background that was only focused on the bottom line of the unit cost and the ship date. And this is how I learned to design toys, and this is how I learned how to go over to China and oversee things. So my decisions when it comes to production are really viewed through that lens, that the ship date is the be-all, end-all, and the unit cost has to be as cheap as possible. Now, this runs counter to how a lot of people design toys, especially uh, sort of independent artists and the meticulous nature in which they craft things and they take the time they need. I don't come from that school of thought. I come from a, a sort of purely commercial uh, early learning zone. <laughs> it's not really the best way to put it, but, uh, you know, my formative years, I was forged as a toy designer through the lens of this is a corporate project it has to ship by this date. It has to be as cheap as possible. Cut anything unnecessary out of this action figure. Um, whether or not that's like the best way to approach making toys and making artistic endeavors, I don't know, but it is what I know. And I do think that my track record for shipping things to people is pretty damn good because I don't indulge myself uh, with things if it's going to take a very long time to, um, you know, bring that to fruition, or if it's going to be late. I, I think that, you know, my promise to you guys and the money that you guys put up in front of these ideas uh, means that I need to deliver this as soon as humanly possible. All that being said, uh, there are things that go wrong. There are tweaks that I wish could have been made. There are times when I wish I could pause the entire project and just rework something completely. I do get some closure on those things every now and then. There are changes that get to be made, like Desert Rat went from wearing shorts to wearing pants, and I think he's a much cooler character now. And, uh, you know, uh, those were eventual changes I got to make. Now, with all that being said, I do think that Sen 5 and the Sen series of robots is probably as close to perfect as my lines get. And by perfect, I sort of define it as, I mentioned this earlier, but as how well does it represent the thought in my brain uh, in a physical product? And I think that Sen is really a great distillation of all of these ideas, all these childhood drawings, um, just the way I've, I sort of visualized it in my mind's eye. So I think to date, Sen 5 is that. He, he is as close to perfect as this line gets. I don't think there's a perfect figure out there. Uh, I think perfection is is just sort of a 
a silly thing, you know, it's unattainable, of course, and um, as an artist, you just sort of strive for as close to that target as you can hit. Oh, that was not the last question. We got one more from Snake Pike. I just got my first Star Marshal and it's given me heavy still suit vibes. Was the still suit the primary inspiration or were there other influences in the design process? Also, would you consider the Star Marshal a direct successor to the resin still suit type figure that were exclusive to conventions earlier in Knights of the Slice history? Great figure, by the way. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Star Marshal has a lot of different influences. But I would say that Bob Ringward, the guy who designed the costumes for David Lynch's Dune, uh, his his work inspires everything I do. He also supervised the Batman suit in the Tim Burton 1989 movie. So this guy has left a huge imprint in terms of costuming and, and superheroes and action movies and, and how things we've never seen before in suit form take shape in the real world. So, you know, every single figure has a little piece of Bob Ringward's work in it. You know, whether it's the sort of Star Marshal or it's the upcoming Verkill, um, you know, there is a, a sort of influence with all of these things. I would say probably the Verkill is closer to a spiritual successor to that early resin figure than the Star Marshal is. Um, and really, Part of that understanding is going to be when people get it in hand and and kind of can see it in person. I don't think photos really do justice uh, to what a, a master sculpt Irwin has come up with. So uh, you guys can look forward to that. Um, and with that question answered, I think we're done here. Uh, super excited for everybody to listen. You know where to check us out. I'm not going to waste your time. The only thing left to say is pizza out. <laughs>